Hello and welcome to Law and Candor, the podcast wholly devoted to pursuing the legal technology revolution. This is our final episode for season one, so buckle up and let's get ready. Uh, my name is Rob and I'm here with my co-host Bill. Our special guest today is David Arlington, special counsel at the law firm Baker Botts. But before we have David talk, we first want to bring you our special section, Sightings of Radical Brilliance. And this is the part of the show where we talk about one of the latest technology developments or something noteworthy in the field of innovation or other acts of sheer genius. Yeah. And this week we're going to talk about deep fakes. And I don't know if you've seen these things. This is, it's, it's incredible. One day, I mean, one minute you're looking at a, a video of uh, Bill Hader on like David Letterman uh, doing a Tom Cruise impersonation. And then right in front of your eyes, Bill Hader's face turns into Tom Cruise. They've done this with uh, actors and actresses and you know, really easy to find it funny and even impressive. And, and wow, the technology is amazing. But then you see the one uh, of Obama with Jordan Peele's voice, and it looks just like Obama. It sounds like Obama because Jordan Peele does a dead on impression, but he's talking about things that needless to say, the president would, would never have spoken about. And you start to see how this thing could get not just entertaining, but scary. I, I agree. You know, I got to be honest, I do think it's scary. Like deep fakes worry me. You know, whatever you think of the term fake news and how that term's sort of currently been appropriated, there actually is fake news out there. And, you know, blog sites and Facebook posts that look like they're legitimate or, you know, CNN articles that look legitimate, you know, they contain fake information. And if you think about how you can do that so easy, you know, in the printed media, you know, think about what, what that looks like now. Yeah, I, you know, with the printed media, it's kind of funny, right? Because you could you could look at something and it doesn't seem right, or it seems like wow, that's too fantastical to be true. We saw that a lot during the 2016 election, right? And yet, so but you could always go somewhere else to corroborate it. You could say, is this is this like a, a is this a fake news ad or is this something real? But with if with this deep fake stuff, is it going to get to the point now where you can't actually believe what you're seeing? Forget what you're reading; you're actually seeing video evidence. You know, or is it? I, it? It really, it really worries me, and and I wonder like how many people even read the news. It's, I feel like you know we trust things that we see even more than what we read, and I, I don't think that's right, but I think it's true. I think it's a big issue, you know. And what makes it worse is that the deep fake technology is getting better and better. You know, governments are starting to be concerned about it. You know, even um, agencies like DARPA are looking into it. You know, it, before we know it, you know, we're going to start to have legal cases that involve this. Um, you know, it's really, it's just going to be interesting to see where this goes. It's, you know, we're going to have to have Jerry Bowie come in and testify whether, you know, every video we watch is fake or not. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you don't, that don't know, Jerry Bowie is the director of digital forensics here at Lighthouse. He's a, the guy's a genius. Uh, he actually did a, a whole presentation on deep fakes at our Illumination Summit. And shameless plug, if you have not been to the Lighthouse Illumination Summit that we do in Florida every year, put it on your calendar, try to get an invite. It's an amazing program. But he did a he did a great presentation on this. And, you know, it was it was scary the some of the stuff that he was playing. I, I, you know, look, it, the bottom line is I, I really do think we're going to get to the point where we're going to see the stuff actually get to the point of being having to be regulated because that's how that's how much damage it could possibly do. So I, I mean imagine what you could do the day before an election. Uh, you know, it could have this is stuff <laughs> that could have a big impact. Yeah. I mean, you can't even, you won't have time to corroborate it, right? I just saw this. I was on my way to the polls and I just saw this. How does that affect? It's just, it's, it's scary. It's crazy. Uh, you know, we live in a weird, weird time right now, but uh, listen, I digress. I, I, we got to get to our speaker. I'm excited about today's episode. Rob, you want to introduce him? Yep. Uh, 
Today's segment is Moving to the Cloud, Part 2, A Law Firm Journey. So as many of you know, you know, for law firms, managing your own servers and IT infrastructure to host client data can be really expensive and, and even risky. Um, it, you know, it's probably not the kind of business that most law firms ever meant to get into, but just kind of have found themselves there. In today's session, we're going to talk about how moving to the cloud has relieved this burden for some law firms, while also having improvements in uh, security. And we're excited to have David Arlington from Baker Botts here. And maybe, David, could you just take a minute and introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Thanks, uh, first of all, for having me today. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, I'm special counsel with Baker Botts. I've been uh, with the firm and its Austin office uh, for about 21 years, uh, which is hard to believe. Uh, I have a background in commercial litigation, uh, primarily focusing on financial fraud and related investigations and uh, sort of what grew out of that starting in around 2003, I've had very uh, heavy involvement in the area of e-discovery. Uh, currently, I lead the firm's uh, Disputes Technology and Services Practice Group, which uh, it encompasses a number of our litigation professionals, but most relevant for today's discussion uh, is that it includes, our group includes all of the attorneys and other professionals within the firm that focus uh, on the area of e-discovery. David, yeah. So it, it, thank you for that. And 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 thanks for, for joining us today. Um, can, can you give us a little background? I want to frame this because obviously every law firm is different. Every corporation is different. We've had several guests in this first season of the podcast. Can you give us some, some give us a, a, like a general background of Baker Botts and your areas of expertise? Uh, sure. The, the firm is, it's an AmLaw 100 firm. Uh, we are all around the world. We've got seven domestic offices, seven international offices, ranging from uh, China to the Middle East. Uh, our practices, uh, I mean, we've got market-leading practices in a number of areas. We're a full-service uh, law firm, but uh, we really have uh, a very strong uh, market-leading practice in areas relating to government investigations, antitrust, uh, IP, anything relating to technology. Uh, and of course, we have a huge litigation practice. And so all of these things, uh, at least, uh, you know, from my perspective, uh, provide opportunities in the area of e-discovery. Yeah, definitely. You know, lots of litigation, government investigations, antitrust. These are all, you know, very document intensive, especially with electronic documents. I assume that this has been a, a, an issue for the firm for a long time. Can you help, maybe help explain to us, like, how did you, how did you get to this point where you, you know, had to make a decision about whether to host things internally or move to the cloud? Ever since I've been involved in e-discovery, uh, we made a decision very early on uh, to make an investment and, and go with uh, an on-premises review platform, and, and we had a team of uh, data analysts that that managed that system. But uh, you know, any law firm uh, is always in the business of looking for ways to improve client service, and that I think is particularly true when you have new leadership come in and and look, you know, with fresh eyes looking at uh, the way you do things. And that happened for us at the beginning of 2017 with a change over in our uh, leadership within the litigation group. And, you know, we went back uh, to evaluate the way we were doing things in e-discovery and 
uh, started to analyze the cost and the capabilities and really came away with the conclusion that we were paying a lot of money for not only license fees, but maintaining infrastructure and making sure we had the appropriate security. Uh, and all of this was out, out of pocket cost for which we had no cost recovery mechanism. You know, David, it's funny, like I, I've talked about this with other firms where, you know, I've heard them say like, no, sometimes people don't even realize how big that cost is growing because the nature of e-discovery is, is that, you know, cases come up, you know, they get worked on, you sort of move on to the next one. And there's not always an easy way to kind of look back and see like how big that volume of data that's getting hosted, you know, has become. Well, and that's, you know, we, we had exactly that experience. And, you know, one of the problems with spending so much money on a system like that is at some point people say, hold on a minute, <laughs> let's, let's cut the spend or let's look at cutting the spend. And so then you find yourself at a crossroads where, uh, you know, are we going to upgrade our technology? Are we going to uh, scale our technology because our cases are demanding it more and more? And it just becomes a very difficult cost prop- proposition to justify. David, I I have to know this because I, I deal with this every day when I talk to clients. Anytime cloud-based services comes up or managed services comes up, it, it will get a, a it will elicit a visceral reaction, especially from the litigation support professionals at the firm. And part of the reason is because they feel like this is the first step towards completely outsourcing um, their roles and responsibilities. It, it, did did you get any of that pushback? Was there any of that fear at the firm when you decided to make this move? And was it well-founded or did it play out some in, in a different way? Uh, we absolutely did. Uh, and that was something uh, that we, we had to address very early on because we wanted buy-in not only from the highest levels uh, within firm management, but also from the people on the ground level that were going to help us forge this new direction. And so when we started talking about change, we made it very clear early on that what we were looking to do was not just outsource everything to a vendor, but actually create a partnership with uh, a vendor where we were providing a BakerBots e-discovery service in partnership with that vendor. And our existing personnel uh, were going to work alongside uh, the personnel that were going to support us from the vendor. And the way that has played out has actually been, uh, I, I think, one of the huge success stories uh, around implementation of this new service. All of our e-discovery personnel, ranging from e-discovery counsel uh, to our litigation support coordinators, data analysts, all of them have seen pretty significant uptick in the amount of work that they're that is coming their way. David, it sounded like it, like it was important, at least for BakerBots, to have that you know sort of a branded e-discovery you know offering and practice. What why was that important to the firm? Is that do you think? that's a competitive advantage these days? Well, I, I do think it's a competitive advantage, but I think more significantly uh, for our clients, it, it really is a value add because they uh, look to us whether or not we are using an outside vendor or our own internal resources to manage their e-discovery work for them on any given case. And for us to be able to say, 
not only are we going to manage that process, but we are going to manage it with our professionals whom we've trained uh, was it was a big selling point uh, for for bringing our clients on board with this. And cradle to grave, how long did it take from uh, first thinking of this to being fully uh, to fully embracing the model and actually being in it? When, when did it start and, and where and how long till, till you got to where you are now? So it, we started, I mean, we made the decision to do something. <laughs> uh, we hadn't quite fleshed out what that was at the very beginning of 2018. And our new service, after going through an RFP process, uh, and uh, you know, developing all of the all of the processes and procedures that go with that new service was up and running as of January 1, 2019. Wow. And what were some of the surprises that you got hit with during that process? I, I got to guess there were things that you didn't expect. There were. I mean, there were some things that we didn't expect, uh, but there were also some things that we expected, but we didn't really appreciate the magnitude <laughs> of the importance of those issues. Uh, one of those was, I mean, we all have heard when you talk about change management that senior level buy-in is very important. Uh, but that really uh, was a critical factor in bringing our our internal uh, lawyers on board with this process to know that this wasn't just a flash in the pan. This is something that firm management was behind. And it was a process that uh, they believed uh, was going to improve the service to our clients. So that, that was a critical piece for us. And, and I think we just saw how well that played out. Uh, the other thing that, because change management and going through those types of things for me is not part of my background, is that there is a lot of handholding that has to go on through this process, whether it be, uh, you know, the people that are on your team sort of struggling with the change uh, or, you know, associates who are now having to have conversations about e-discovery services with partners that they never had to have before or partners that are having those discussions with clients. So we had to inject ourselves in the middle of that quite a bit. But all in all, I would say it worked out It worked out well. Uh, it just was something that I don't know that I personally foresaw as part of that. And now that you're kind of at the end of this journey, what, what's the consensus within the firm? Was it, you know, was it worth it? Do you feel like you're in a better place now? Yeah, I, you know, when we started this, uh, our goals were really uh, focused on, you know, we wanted to be able to provide the latest technology to our clients, uh, a high level of service, uh, and we wanted to do it in a way that made the cost structure predictable and competitive for our clients. And as part of that, we also, as I mentioned earlier, wanted a mechanism to recover at least some of our costs. And, you know, eight months into this, we are very well on our way to accomplishing uh, each of those goals, I would say. Um, we have, you know, our, our litigators uh, have been very enthusiastic about this. You know, we had some people that were a little bit slower to come on board. Uh, but once they got a glimpse of the service and, and saw how it was working, they were very much on board and, and brought our clients on board. 
No, it's amazing. D- David, do you, do you when you when you first started down this road in January of eighteen, and you knew you wanted to do something? Did you ever envision that in August of nineteen you'd be a celebrity podcaster? <laughs> well, I, I didn't, and uh, I I did mention that that was the case to my eighth grade son, and uh, <laughs> he, he's struggling a little bit to come to terms with the fame and and celebrity. Yeah, I was going to say there's a diner in my neighborhood. They they already they already asked for an eight by ten black and white glossy. If you could autograph it and send it, I'm going to introduce you to the diner guy, and then it's free French onion soup anytime you're in town. Well, black and white is perfect because I'm colorblind, and I wouldn't appreciate the difference. <laughs> so. And David, I have to warn you, we have a pretty fanatical fan base. You know, if you're stalked as a result of this podcast, we we sincerely apologize, but it just, you know, it's the price of fame. Well, it's okay. I sent you a picture that was like 15 years old, so maybe they won't recognize me anymore. <laughs> uh, good. It, it'll match bills then. Perfect. <laughs> well, David, we just want to thank you for, for being willing to come on and, and walking through this journey. I think, you know, I know a lot of law firms right now are going through the same evaluation process of deciding how to move forward. And I, I think this, this is great advice for them. And uh, thanks again for sharing it. Thank you all again for having me. I enjoyed it. Yep. You got it. So uh, Rob, if I'm, I'm coming out of this and this, this is probably one of my favorite episodes we've done to this point, And it's because so many of our clients are facing this and coming out of this is quite a few takeaways and I'm sure I'm leaving some of them out, but you know, First thing is to to not look at this as a threat to litigation support. In fact, your billables go up because they're not as much as you're doing more valuable work. Um, you know, litigation support is actually probably their utilization is going up around more strategic uh, tasks. Um, the bottom line is this is a cost issue not only for the firm but for their clients, and you're delivering a significant value add to your clients. Um, it, it could be a somewhat long process, about a year, um, to, to, to conceive of this and then to get it to the point where it's up and running and, and getting senior level buy-in seems to be super critical here. And that that's to probably to prevent some partners from going rogue and doing their own thing. It, knowing that you have that senior level buy-in, it seems like that is critical to this being, being successful. And, uh, I, I mean, this is, it's a success story for this model. Yeah, I agree. This has been a great conversation. And uh, thanks again, David. And for the rest of our audience, thanks for tuning into the last episode of season one. Stay tuned for season two coming. And uh, we'll look forward to talking to you this holiday season. 